Hopefully you've had a chance to look up Acts chapter 3. This is the passage that we are going to be looking at this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you now for this time to be able to open up not just any book. Heaven and earth will pass away, but these words will endure forever. And these words here are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Lord, these words here are a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. If these words are hidden in our heart, we may not sin against you. Lord, would you allow these words to speak to us again this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to introduce you to someone. Those words were spoken to me the summer of 1998, and it was in a pizza hut in northern Illinois, just minutes from Great America. They were spoken by a woman named Michelle, who was referring to her little sister, Melody. I would like to introduce you to someone. Those words came to fruition, actually right here between that first and second row, where I met Melody about a month later. And being introduced to her resulted in a friendship, and a dating and courtship, eventually an engagement, and then some almost 17 years now into a marriage together. I would like to introduce you to someone. Those words, and maybe you've said those words before, maybe not necessarily intended to introduce a a man and a woman together, but you, you meet with someone and you're like, I know someone who would really connect with this guy or this girl. They have a similar interest and similar personality. They would be a good fit. As we've been going through this journey of learning about how the church was birthed, This has been a theme that they have had. I would like to introduce you to someone, Jesus Christ. So in Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus is still with the disciples. He has been with them for 40 days after his resurrection. And then he tells them, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to ascend. And as I go up, the Holy Spirit will come. And you are to... Be witnesses of my message and my life, not only to the city here in Jerusalem, but to Samaria, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. You are to introduce me to people. In the second chapter of Acts, a wonderful thing takes place. The fulfillment of that promise happens as the Spirit comes down on these 120 believers. And as He comes... They begin to speak in foreign languages. And because it was the Pentecost festival, similar to our Mardi Gras, people from all over the world are there and they're hearing these languages and they're saying, what's up with this, people? And they go and an apostle named Peter gets up and proclaims a message as if to say, I would like to introduce you to someone to preach about Jesus. And 3,000 people become followers of Jesus at the end of that sermon. 
Well, what do you do with 3,000 new believers? Last week, we looked at the last six verses of Acts chapter 2, and we found out this is how they discipled them. They taught them what the apostles had to say. They invested in relationships. They were very intentional about forming friendships with them. They prayed together. They observed the Lord's Supper. And then they went out into the community and said, there's someone I'd like to introduce to you. Well, if you remember last week in Acts chapter 2, there was a verse there in verse 43. And in the explanation of how they discipled all these new believers, it said, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Wonders and signs. Maybe you paused and you said, I wonder what some of these wonders and signs were. Well, look no further than Acts chapter 3. As we now continue in our story of the early church. So follow along with me in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now who are Peter and John? These are two of the most famous followers of Jesus, the most famous of the apostles or disciples. They were fishermen at one time. And we see these two throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. They were there getting the elements ready for the upper room and the Lord's Supper. They were there when they heard about the empty tomb and they ran down towards the empty tomb to discover that Jesus was not there. Here they are going into the temple. You see, the early Christians were Jews. The early missionaries were Jews, and there was some Judaism, some of the religion of the Jews that was still connected to this early Christianity. And so they were going to the temple for a time of prayer. The Bible says here the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This would have been about three o'clock in the afternoon. Verse 2 records, And a man, lame from birth, was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So there is a man who has been lame from birth. He's never been able to walk. Presumably his friends and family position him in a strategic location just outside the temple to an area called the beautiful gate. These doors were 25 feet tall and there were double doors. And there would have been a dramatic contrast between how beautiful this temple looked and how decrepit this man's condition was. He'd been positioned there for alms, that is, to receive charity from people who were going in to pray. He was opportunistic. Look with me at verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Hey, could you help me out? Could you, could you give me some money for food and for clothing? Verse 4 says, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And verse 5, And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And verse 6 says, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, 
I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, wise up and walk. We see here in the early church, they did not have an outreach budget. They did not have a discipling budget. They didn't have any budget. Peter came without any money in his wallet at all. But what he did have, he presented to this man who was lame, who could not walk. He presented to him a concern. And the power of God coursed through his veins. And he tells him to rise and to walk. And in typical Peter fashion, look at what it says here in verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. Not one just to say something, but one to do something about what he says. He reaches down with his right hand and pulls the man up. One preacher named Thomas Walker says, The power was Christ, but the hand was Peter's. The power was working through this early Christian, but the hand was Peter's. The scriptures tell us here, remember the book of Acts is written by a physician, by a doctor named Luke. And it says here, his feet and his ankles were made strong. And so suddenly in verse 8, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. No wonder verse 9 says, and All the people saw him walking and praising God. This was an enormous commotion. People, religious people, had gone to the temple that day to pray. And now they're seeing a man that they have always observed, the lame man there at the beautiful gate, and he is no longer laying there. He is leaping and he is walking and he is praising God. And the scripture says that, He had all of their attention at that moment. They probably didn't know this, but this was a fulfillment of a prophecy. In Isaiah 35, verse 6, that says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Verse 10 tells us they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here you have this miraculous event. If you're following in your outline this morning, you see a miracle that leads to a sermon. This event here at the first ten verses of Acts chapter 3 are merely an introduction to a sermon that is about ready to be preached. Now, if you have read through Acts chapter 2 carefully, and if you would read through Acts chapter 3 carefully, you will see a pattern here. You'll see a miracle that occurs at the beginning of each chapter. In chapter 2, it's this Holy Spirit. He comes down on these people. And they begin to speak in foreign languages. But people can understand that language. In chapter 3, the miracle is this lame man is able to leap and to walk. These miracles then are secondly followed up by wonder and amazement of a great crowd that gathers and say, what is causing this? The third similarity that we see here is that people are told by Peter, we had nothing to do with this. 
God's power has made this possible on these people. And while I have you here, there's someone I'd like to introduce you to. And he preaches to them about Jesus, about who he is, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, that he came and was sentenced to death by their very hands, the people in that crowd, and that he was crucified and that God raised him from the dead and that these apostles, these disciples are witnesses to the fact they observed Jesus for 40 days after his resurrection. And then, like any good sermon, will end with an application where there is this appeal to repent and become followers of this Jesus. There is this miracle that leads to a sermon. Now there is this sermon, number two, that leads to Jesus. Let's look at chapter 3. Now let's read verse 11 and following. While he, now that's the lame man, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. So they've all come and they've gathered. And you can imagine Peter gets into a place where he can be seen and where his words can be heard. And his first words here on verse 12 are, Men of Israel. And this is significant. Because Peter knows who he's speaking to. He is not speaking to non-Jews. He is speaking to Jews. They had gone to the temple that day to pray. These are people that were very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So he knows their language and he's going to present a sermon for their ears and their hearts. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Listen to verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. This is a sermon that leads to Jesus. We see here that he is going to identify who Jesus is to this crowd of people. There is someone I would like to introduce you to. It says here that he, from the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and every person in that crowd that day would have known exactly who those people were. Abraham is the father of the Jews, not only in their ancestry, but in their faith. His son is Isaac and his son is Jacob. And, and Peter is saying from this very same God, there was a servant named Jesus who was glorified. Now the people of this time they knew about a coming Messiah from the Old Testament Scriptures. But there was a misunderstanding for them because they didn't think it was possible that there could be a, a, a Messiah, a Christ that would come that would demonstrate some weakness. How could he be a servant? But this is what Peter said in his sermon. And, and Paul would reiterate this in a later letter in 1 Corinthians 1 where he said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. They saw this coming Messiah as only strength. But the coming Messiah would be one that would die for people's sins. The people in the crowd that day needed to be reminded of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where it says, 
Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. They needed to be reminded of another Old Testament passage that says that they have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. They needed to be reminded of these things. That Jesus is the servant, but he has come like a sacrificial lamb. That the sins of the people would be transferred on to him. That they could go in forgiveness with their guilt cleared. And he would receive their forgiveness, the very judgment of God. He presented to them this Jesus who was a servant. But it says there in the scriptures, he is also holy and he is righteous. Look what it says there in the last part of verse 13. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And he decided to release him. Verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. There's someone I'd like to introduce you to. And he is Jesus. He is the servant, but he is also holy. He has never sinned despite experiencing all the temptations that you have. He has never yielded to them. He is righteous. He has always lived the right way. In fact, if you want to know how to live the right way, follow him and follow his teachings. But he's already hit on Abraham. And if I were to skip near the end of his message, he's also going to bring in Moses into this sermon. So just bear with me and skip down to verse 22. In the same sermon, Peter preaches, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, and from your brothers you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Peter is going to say, You remember Moses? Even Moses said, there will be a prophet that comes after me. He'll be kind of like me. And the the, the book of Hebrews would say that Jesus is far better than Moses. In the same way that Moses was a deliverer. He delivered the Israelites from the captivity of the nation of Egypt. He went up on a mountain and he received the law of God. And he led them towards the promised land. Jesus is a much better deliverer. He delivered people not just from an oppressive nation, but from sin. And he led to them on a mountain, not just to receive a law, but he preached a sermon on the mount. And he led them not to just the land, but he led them to a promised life. And so Peter is pleading, there's someone I want to introduce you to, and he is Jesus. And he is so much better than Moses. He is better than Abraham. Look with me at verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your families saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He is speaking to this congregation who are very familiar with all these Old Testament scriptures. He's dropped Abraham. He's dropped Moses. He's dropping Samuel and all the prophets and saying they have pointed to this servant. They have pointed to this Jesus. And then he goes to Genesis chapter 12. And if you're familiar with the storyline of the Old Testament, Genesis 12 is huge. 
Because the first 11 chapters of Genesis just display a bunch of wreckage. Yes, there's this wonderful creation. And then in Genesis 3, there's the fall. But then there's just one spiraling effects of sin after another. And in Genesis 12, the plan, the plan begins to be unrolled. And it doesn't find its fruition to all the way into Jesus, right? And this is the plan. He says to an old man, Abraham, from you, I'm going to make you a great nation. But here in this sermon, he quotes verse 3 of Genesis 12 that says, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And he was pointing to Jesus. From the ancestry, from the family tree of Abraham, Jesus would be born so that every family could be blessed to know what it's like to have their sins forgiven and to be able to walk with him. Listen to verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, where is he preaching this message? He is preaching this message in a temple, at a prayer meeting, and he is calling them out for their wickedness. Does, does that... Does that seem a little different? These people were great rule followers. They, they obeyed the law. But their hearts were far from the Lord. And he is telling them to renounce their wickedness. So he, he offers a sermon that leads to Jesus. That Jesus is holy. He is righteous and the author of life. He talks about Samuel. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Moses. And then, going back to the beginning of this message, he says, hey, Jesus is the reason that this man can walk. Look with me at verse 16. And his name, by faith, in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Thousands of people there. They're at the temple. And they're wondering, how did this happen? There's someone I want to introduce you to. And so he lays out who Jesus is. And then he says to them, it is because of Jesus that this man can walk. And then he has one more word for them before he brings it home for an application. He, he puts the knife in and he twists it when he says, you have denied Jesus. Look with me again at verse 13 through 15. And there are three different times he uses the word you. Y-O-U. And let's look at those three times. Look at verse 13 again. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. He has proclaimed this message to them of who Jesus is. And he looks them right in the eye and he says, you are far from Jesus. In fact, you had a, had a way in bringing him to his cross. 
You are the ones who have done this. You are the ones who have done this. And he allows them to feel the weight of that condemnation. Now, every good sermon is going to have an application. And so let us consider the application that Peter had for the first century, and let us also consider the application he has for us today. An invitation that leads to repentance. That's number three. Follow along with me in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He is saying to them, listen, you, you put him on the cross, you might not have fully realized what you were doing. What did Jesus say when he was up on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Luke 23, verse 34. And while the people in that crowd may have not fully grasped who this Jesus is and what they were doing by denying him, they were nonetheless responsible for their rejection of him. And then it says here in verse 18, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And this is the application, verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back. As he's speaking to these thousands of people in the crowd that have been turning their back and walking away from Jesus and his leadership and his rule of his life, he calls them to repent and to turn back, to look to Jesus, the risen Lord, the one who has ascended to be with the Father. And he says, submit, surrender your life to his lordship. Turn back. Repent. This is the application of this message. And there are three different blessings that you will receive when you turn back and when you repent. Here is the first. Look with me again at verse 8, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Why? Here's the first blessing, that your sins may be blotted out. So imagine I have a brand new dry erase board up here. And I have a new marker and a new eraser. And let's say this massive dry erase board, I write the following words. Your sins in black, in all caps. And they are there for everyone to see. Your sins. And what it means to be blotted out is to take a brand new eraser and to erase all of that so there is no trace at all of those words. And he is preaching to the people that day. There is someone I want to introduce you to that can wipe away all your sins. John Stott is a preacher who's passed away in recent years. One day he was visiting with a man that was an administrator to this massive mental facility where the inpatients and the, the, the people, the residents of that place had all an array of mental illness. And the administrator turned to John Stout, this Bible teacher, and he said to him, I could release half of the people in this mental hospital tomorrow if these people could find forgiveness. Now you just think about that. This was a man who was aware of all the different mental illness and he was treating it. But he could trace it back to one cause, guilt. Not knowing the joy of having your sins forgiven. So here is Jesus being presented to the people 
that you would not have to live in guilt, but you would have a relationship and you would be clear, blotted away, wiped clean. And Peter is saying, please repent, turn back, that you could experience the forgiveness of sins. Here's a second reason, a second blessing that comes from repentance. You see it in verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The first is that you could have your sins wiped away. The second is that you could experience times of refreshing. On Friday, I was at a store and I bumped into an old friend from high school. Oh, what a blessing. I'm from a little small town in northwest Wisconsin and there's not many of us around. And, and to bump into her, it was like, oh, just let's just take some time to reminisce and, and catch up. And we did that and it was, it was wonderful. And I whirled and she turned and we went our ways. And for the last two days, I've been able to think about where I was when Jesus found me. I was in college. And I think about where I was in my life. Oh, man, you talk about shy. I was painfully shy, consumed by what others would think of me, fearful of making a mistake, fear of being rejected, lacked purpose, generally confused about life, such a loner because I was afraid if people got to know me that they, they won't like me. And I was so prone to resentment and, and unforgiveness. My anger was not the explosive one where I would break stuff, but one in which I would just clam up. And there were sins in my life that I knew were sins, but I was absolutely powerless to control. And then someone introduced Jesus to me. You see, the gospel message is not only activated the moment you die. The gospel power is activated the moment you become a Christian. And it's not only good for the moment you die, it's good from that moment that you become a Christian. So as a result, you know, it has been decades since I've asked myself, what is my purpose in life? My purpose in life is to know Jesus, is to enjoy Him, and to go up to someone and say, there's someone I would like you to meet and tell them about Jesus. There was a time where I was so lonely and such a loner, I lacked a sense of belonging. But God has given to us a family, right? A church family. And I love to walk around the perimeter of this auditorium throughout the week with my directory, and I pray. I pray for you, and I pray for your faces. And often I'm, I'm just so grateful that I actually know you and, and I can call you a friend. What a blessing. I say, God, thank you. Thank you for this person. Thank you that I get to know them and I get to relate to them and encourage them and I get encouragement from them as well. There are these times of refreshing. Do you know what that's like? This is the second benefit that Peter says that will come to those who repent. And then here's the third. And I want to hasten here. It says here in the last part of verse 20, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Looks at verse 21. Whom heaven must receive until the time 
for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The third benefit to repentance is there will be this restoring of all things. How many of you know we live in a broken world? How many see evidence of that every single day? The world is upside down. There are wars. There are controversies. There's an ungodly government. There are unjust laws. There's corruption. There's lies. There's broken families, strained relationships, abuse. Our world is like an old dilapidated house that is teetering on collapse. But there will come a day when this Jesus, the same Jesus whom Peter is preaching about and the one I am doing my best to preach about this morning will come back and restore all things. And when we repent, we get to experience the blessing of that restored or that restoration. Then let me conclude with this one here. How well do you think this sermon was preached? How effectively do you think it was received? Peter has just preached his guts out there on the temple grounds. And how well do you think the leaders, the priests, the the leaders of that temple received it? Well, let's read a little bit about that in chapter 4. Verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came out upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. All he was doing was preaching Jesus. And you know who arrested him? The leaders of the temple. I have a hunch that many of us think that we live in a godless day in which the Spirit of God can no longer work or where the gospel has lost all of its power. But I want to return you to the first century this morning and realize that it was much more hostile to Jesus and the gospel in the first century as it is today. He got arrested for preaching about Jesus in the temple grounds. Oh, but I want to remind you how powerful this gospel is. Because look what happens in the next verse. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. And a rest, number four, that leads to souls being saved. Now in the church service, often there's something called an invitation at the end of a sermon where people are encouraged to apply that message. And often it's to some wonderful hymn that get people to be thinking about it. Well, I want you to consider the invitation of this sermon as Peter is having handcuffs put on his wrist and being dragged off the platform into jail. As he is being arrested, he is telling the people, Repent! Believe in Jesus that you would be saved and forgiven of your sins. And he's being dragged off. And guess what? Thousands of people responded to that gospel message. When they knew it could result in their own imprisonment, the loss of family and their property. 
What a magnificent message that we have. What a magnificent Savior that we have. What a powerful gospel it is that we preach. There's someone that I would like to introduce you to. And his name is Jesus. Now before you close your Bible, before you put your outline away, let me just make three quick remarks and then we'll be done. One, notice how patient God is throughout all of this. These people that were there that day lived during the life of ministry of Jesus. They were present there. And Jesus performed miracles. They heard his words that he had shared to them. They heard him say, repent. But they would not do it. They could have been there in chapter 2 when Peter got up to preach his first message and urged them to repent there as well. And now they are hearing it again. God is patient. He is loving. He is allowing us to hear this gospel message again. He is patient. There's someone I'd like to introduce you to. His name is Jesus. And I'd urge you to repent of your sins and place your faith in what Jesus has done. The second closing remark I want to make here is actually related to chapter 4, verse 22. Let me just have you look at this real quick. It says, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The lame man back here in chapter 3 was over 40 years old. On Friday, sometimes what I'll do is I'll take a passage of Scripture that I'm going to preach on and I'll listen to a sermon And I come across a wonderful old Baptist preacher named Vance Havner. Anyone know that name? A few of you do, just a few. He preached a message that I would love for you to listen to sometime. The message is entitled, Miracles After 40. And the makeup of our congregation on this particular morning is different. The average age is spiked today because all of our youth are gone. And there are as many of us that are in that category of 40 or older. And Vance Havner, oh, would you listen to this? Just Google Vance Havner, Miracles After 40. He preaches the messages to us that are 40 and older. And he, he gets in, the, in a very loving way a winsome way, a humorous way. He, he draws all sorts of word pictures and say that Jesus has not done with you yet. Don't wait and don't stand back and watch him do all of his work in the young people. Don't be like that old glass of milk that you pour and put on the counter and just let it stay there to its own way and then it gets sour, foul in its smell and curds up. But allow Jesus to do a new work. How long has it been since you've had times of refreshing in your life? And maybe the message this morning has been about introducing you to Jesus, but maybe some of you need to be reacquainted with Jesus. Maybe there hasn't been much refreshment lately. It would be good for you just to kind of go back and pause and say, Oh, I don't want to get stuck in my ways. Instead, God, I still want you to do a work, a refreshing work in my life. And then here's the final remark, and then I'm done. 
What we see here is one salvation that leads to thousands of salvations. There are times where God will save a man or save a woman, and that person is so influential that it is a spark that leads to all sorts of other people to become followers of Jesus as well. There was an old Methodist preacher by the name of Samuel Chadwick. And whenever he would go and do a a revival or preaching of meetings, he would always pray for a Lazarus to get saved. Because that hardened sinner in the crowd could be saved. And they would observe what God had done in that man or that woman's life. Others often would follow suit. And are there people on your list that you've been praying for? Are there people that you would not put on your list because you think they're too far removed from God's hand? Maybe God would bring those right back to your memory today, this week. And you would say, you know what? That's exactly the person I ought to pray for. Because one salvation could lead to hundreds, not thousands of salvations. There is someone I'd like to introduce you to. And his name is Jesus. Do you know him? Are you walking with him? Are you experiencing the refreshment that comes in your walk with him? Let's pray. Father, as we close our Bibles, we don't close our minds nor our hearts. Your word is active. This was not just a talk. This was not just a book study. We are now in a place where we have to decide what are we going to do with this. Lord, I pray for those to follow Peter's instructions to repent, to turn back to Jesus. In this particular crowd, there were thousands that did that. And may there be many in this room that would just say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord. I want you to be king of my life. I want to be forgiven. I want my sins to be wiped away. I I want this refreshing myself. Yes, I want to escape the flames of hell and and be assured of heaven. But I, I want to know what it's like to have joy right now in walking with you. Help me to live with purpose. I mean, to have a sense of belonging. And may we be a church that would leave these doors in a couple of minutes and be able to say, there's someone that I'd like to introduce to you. In Jesus' name, amen.